Hi, my name is Mary Herod, and I'm your host for this podcast. I'm a person with lived experience of drug use, including injecting drug use and methadone treatment. My current role is the CEO of the New South Wales Users and AIDS Association, or NUA. NUA is funded by New South Wales Health, and our mission is to support the health, human rights, and dignity of all people who use or have used drugs in New South Wales. This series of three podcasts will look at stigma and discrimination. People experience stigma when they're perceived in a negative way because of personal characteristics, such as race, religion, sexuality, or for the topic of this podcast, their choices around drug use. Discrimination is a product of stigma and results in treating people differently. One example of discrimination that people who use drugs or who are on treatment experience is the automatic assumption that they're seeking pain medications when visiting a doctor, no matter the reason they came in that day. When people who use drugs experience this type of discrimination in healthcare centers, the shame and frustration that occurs as a result can mean that they avoid healthcare completely or only seek help when the issue becomes urgent. Each negative encounter can make it harder for someone who may already be struggling with self-esteem to return for care. But the reverse is also true. The respectful relationship that happens in great healthcare can empower people to seek healthcare and often support self-care more generally. General practitioners play a pivotal role in supporting access to care, but also in supporting healthy lifestyles. This is just as true for people who use drugs as anyone else. The aim of this podcast is to raise awareness of the impact of stigma and discrimination and to give general practitioners an opportunity to reflect on attitudes and behaviors that may impact patients with lived or living experience of alcohol and drug use. We're going to look at the crucial role of language and how non-judgmental language can support positive clinical interactions in this first episode. Joining me today are two guests, and one is Francine Campbell, who's a proud First Nations woman and a member of the New South Wales Health Consumer Reference Committee. She's been actively involved in drug and alcohol and mental and health consumer advocacy since 2016 and lives in northern New South Wales and is the mother of five wonderful children. She's passionate about art and learning more about her culture. Also joining me is James Ibrahim. James is a general practitioner and the director of the Terry Hills Medical Center. He's also chair of the RACGP Social Prescribing Specific Interest Group and is the Sydney North Health Network AOD clinical lead. James is on a mission to personalize primary care. Um, I'll, I'll start with James. Uh, and James, can you just uh, explain what you mean by personalized primary care? There's a few things in, in personalized general practice, but mostly that the patient feels at the end of the consultation that they were seen and heard and, um, you know, and hopefully the approach that the general practitioner took was something that was in some way um, nuanced to their specific needs, their context, you know. Um, and so a lot of that, uh, really, the focus on that and my passion regarding social prescribing, which is referring people to programs and activities um, to improve their health and well-being, um, is, is really to sort of um, address more of the social determinants of their health rather than just the presenting complaint, which is a, a difficult thing to switch into. Uh, in a consultation when people come in because of their ingrown toenail. So, um, yeah, I, I think um, there's been a lot of forces on general practice, external forces, Medicare, the way that things uh, are funded and the way that things are run, as well as, you know, what 
yeah, and, and as a as the sort of you know um, practice principal at Terry Hills, and uh, I fully understand the sort of financial stresses of, of of running a general practice and what is required to make it a viable general practice, and all those things, um, a lot of them have a tendency to depersonalize care. Um, so, uh, really trying your best to um, it's a difficult ask of GPs uh, and, and we need to look at ways to sort of enable them to, to do this better um, because uh, yeah, there's a lot of pressures that, that don't personalize and, and lead to more unlike, you know, uh, generic, uh, um, generic unpersonalized care. So trying to combat that with different ways of, of um, bringing the patient voice needs into it. How has an awareness of stigma and discrimination helped you in that that passion and that aim of yours in and delivering great primary care? Uh, look, not that I do. I mean, I, I think there's there's I can't say that I deliver great primary care. I think there's a lot of times I feel uncomfortable about the day's work that I've had and um, and and certain moments in certain consultations and certainly at the end of the most busy days are probably the worst where I feel like. There were probably a whole bunch of opportunities. We do have to give ourselves a break. I think there was a, a study done in the US where they looked at if a GP was to perform all the appropriate preventable, prevent, preventative activities for every patient they saw in a standard day, that added a workload of, so this is, you know, someone who actually practiced according to all the guidelines, added a workload of about seven hours to their day. So you know, it's, it's absolutely unsustainable and unrealistic to expect us to perform all the preventable, preventative activities uh, for everyone. And also the patients don't have that time either. They're booked in for 15 minutes. You can't keep them for an hour and a half because they need to get through their everything, you know? So, um, but to answer your question, um, you can't have personalized care if the patient is not engaged. Uh, and I think stigma comes down. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an attack on that engagement and that um, therapeutic relationship. So, um, without with stigma, when there is stigma, you just lose your patience and you lose that engagement. And occasionally, I slip up with my language, and I see the occasionally the, sh the shoulders slump, and I feel that sense of you know, um, of uh, of tension, and and just I uh, I quickly try to call myself out. And that's usually met with the most welcomed uh, sort of, you know, uh, sincere, oh, that's okay, doctor, don't worry about it. Um, so, yeah, just being mindful that it, it will be a, um, an intruder on your development of a therapeutic relationship with your patients. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the focus of this episode is language. And we do have a resource at NUA that we've developed with a network of alcohol and drug agencies, NADA. Uh, that looks at how, what language supports good clinical care. It's, it can be found on our website, which is www.nuaa.org.au. Um, and it, it gives a broad overview of um, language that's helpful in engaging with patients. Um, so going to you, Franny, um, how do you engage engage with doctors on these issues? Oh, hi, Mary. Hi, James. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, I just try to be honest with the doctors. I try to explain to them that, because um, I have had doctors in, in the past 
um, look at my um, past history and be rather uh, discriminative. But um, it's just, I think it's about having a, a really good conversation and about opening up to each other about the way the language that's used and pulling people up on it. We all have a level of accountability. Um, when, when you go into a GP um, and you step in that door, they, to me, have a duty of care to treat you as they would any other patient, somebody with a broken arm, somebody with a sore tooth, um, to treat a person who has had years of abuse um, drug use and things like that to treat them with dignity and respect the same way we treat any other person. I don't think it's hard to be a little bit more open and understanding around certain topics. What would you typically say when you're trying to do this advocacy on this issue? I would just say to them that, you know, um, that the best practice that I've seen coming from doctors is when they're more accepting of the wider, broader community. Um, and I just think that, you know, sitting down, having a conversation with the doctor and just explaining to them that, you know, language does matter. It can be, it can be a turning point of whether somebody continues on with getting the care that they need for their issue, or even if it's a health issue, it can impact so greatly upon these things that, you know, the people that turn away from the misconduct, the, the, the wrong kind of language, the, the stigmatisation and discrimination, the people that walk out those doors, we'd want to hope that they never become a statistic. And that's the thing. We are seeing that because of different practices, different language, uh, discriminatory practice. So I think it's, it's about having a really big conversation and on the other hand, I do understand that doctors are so isolated in a lot of ways that they're not, um, they don't sit on a multidisciplinary team where they can talk and bounce ideas off each other. Because the language matters document that Mary just mentioned is incredibly useful. And I have not only myself, there's been other members of the CRC who have gladly just put that in doctor surgeries just for them to look at, you know, as a starting point. I think it's really important to have this conversation because it's it's been an ongoing thing where this has been going on for such a long time and it's time, time to break that cycle and really, really look at how we can do breast best practice holistically um, through, you know, looking at the whole being, not just looking at the problem, you know, if we can address the whole issue and the holistic issue, we have a better chance of success of, of saving people, of helping them to find their pathway. Hey, thank you very much, Granny. Um, I'm just going to go to James because, um, Franny's raised the Language Matters resource, and I know that you're familiar with that as well. Um, what are some of the challenges that GP face in, in changing their practices around language and kind of shifting uh, to what's suggested in that resource, for example? I guess um, it, it doesn't happen automatically, like the way that language develops, you know, elsewhere in other workplaces. 
So um, it does require some effort on the general practitioner's part to sort of proactively change it. It's not going to just automatically happen. Um, so that's probably the challenge. The biggest challenge is the way you developed the, you know, the way you talk about conditions and, and, um, and things in hospital and the way that's been carried through and understanding why it's talked about like that in hospital. I mean, they don't have time to get into uh, every sort of uh, individualized aspect of that patient's care in a midnight ED handover. They need to get back to the person that's having chest pain in the waiting room. So, um, so I think resources like this um, and even just, just generally having a sort of person-centered approach and just realizing, I mean, most of this resource is about, um, you know, saying a person who rather than um, a drug user, you know? Um, so yeah. putting, putting the person in it rather than putting the, um, you know, the uh, adjective, you know, as the primary uh, descriptor of that individual, because it can be very minimizing if the patient hears themselves being spoken about. And I think um, often that's the issue here, patients feeling small and feeling minimized. And, and to say, um, you know, a, a drug seeker, a drug user um, really does, it's, it's very reductionistic for that person um, when there's a whole lot more going on. Fortunately, in general practice, we've got a whole context of stuff where we can sort of understand the many different facets of that individual person's life. Um, so, you know, I think it, it, it should be easily adopted. It is our um, default to sort of see someone in the many different aspects, you know, the social context of their life, the family history, et cetera. Um, but unfortunately, the language does carry over from hospital and it is not natural or easy to sort of develop that in our profession. I, I just want to return to that first example you gave of seeing someone's shoulder droop and then noticing that and saying, oh, apologizing. And then kind of that instantaneous, almost repairing that relationship work that can happen and, and going back to like, a, it, it all is coming down to person-focused care, like you said about the language. So, um, you know, the only person we can develop this language with, who are we having conversations with, who does develop our language as our profession progresses? Um, well, we spend all our time speaking with patients. Um, so I, I think they should feel more than comfortable to sort of, you know, educate, make slight adjustments, et cetera. Right. And Franny, do you have anything else that you want to add about um, your approach to educating GPs and, and what language actually really works for you when you're in a consultation okay um actually i just really appreciated what um james said you know that the education does come from the patient yeah in, in a lot of ways and i think that by opening up and having that conversation with us talking to the gps that that is very well said james that it is a way for us to educate them around the language we prefer and and around a lot of the, the care that comes across much more professional and, and better practice at the end of the day. Thank you, Mary. James and Franny, do you have any final words of advice on this issue for anyone that you'd like to share with us? I just wanna say thank you very much for opening this space to be able to have this discussion. Thank you, James, for being present for that as well. And, um, for putting it out there. And so we can hear it from the GP's perspective as well, because I think it's very important that we also have an understanding 
of GPs and things like that. So I really appreciate you coming on and thank you, Mary, for opening this space to do this. Thank you. And I'll just add, um, I guess some of the unseen um, stigma uh, or discrimination that I feel occurs sometimes in my clinic, um, a lot of it is to do with the systems in the clinic. Um, and so just a, a few comments on that. You know, as I said, my most busy days are the ones where I feel like I've probably um, done the worst job because in, when under that kind of time pressure, uh, and this is really about appointment book management, um, often you think mm, maybe someone was opening up there about that and I didn't actually have the time to do it. Maybe that was their that might have been their big call out, you know, but because I was 30 minutes behind and um, had to go to school pickup, I just let that one slide, you know. Um, and so uh, it, it's difficult to manage. And, and sometimes, you know, things like highlighting that, you know, um, from a more practical manner, you know, this sounds like something that's really important to you. Unfortunately, I don't have the time to, to sort of um, address this right now, but I, I recognize that it, it, it came across to me that you were talking about this as, as an opportunity to open up and, and, and share more about it and see what we could do to support you. So rather than rushing through this, it probably deserves its own time. And, and that way, at least they know that they've been heard and they, the, the GP has sort of, you know, um, bookmarked that as valid, legitimate, and something that is worthy and deserving of its own time. Because that's the other thing, we, we can't sort of meet all those needs in our scheduled appointment books when we often already run late. So um, I think just the opportunity to flag it, say that you've recognized it and that it's important to you and you're willing to go on that journey with the patient and for them to book up a follow-up appointment is fine. I think most patients would find that um, quite validating, um, even if you can't address it that day. Um, the other thing, practic practically speaking, that's helped has been, um, you know, flagging patients with reception to make sure certain patients can't book standard appointments. They book 30 minute appointments. So for some patients, I know that there's, you know, there's, there's gonna be more to cover. Um, and so we ensure that there's enough time for these particular patients. And, and the third would be the whole practice um, culture, I guess, from, you know, yeah. reception staff to um, what the waiting room looks like, things like that. So a lot of practices that have registrars, they may not want them or they wanna be protecting those registrars from, um, you know, uh, dealing with any of the drugs of addiction, that kind of thing. And so there might be signs in the waiting room and, and it might say, you know, yeah. we don't prescribe any drugs of addiction in this clinic. And someone walks into a place like that, they're instantly going to feel uncomfortable if they are someone with, a, you know, a substance dependence. So um, rather than that, you know, you could think about moving that into the GP registrar's, you know, room. Uh, and maybe even justifying it, you know, uh, GP registrar, you know, will, will not be, if you need that, please see one of the other doctors or something like that. So just trying to be a bit more specific than generalized about it, as well as just watching the language and the way that reception, uh, you know, talk about the patients, book the patients, and especially um, confidentiality at the reception desk is a big thing too. It's a, it's a constant struggle because we have to discuss things with receptionists, but just be mindful of what the other patients might be overhearing in the waiting area um, and just being mindful of the way that the receptionists talk about this, these kind of matters. So um, I think there's a, a lot of that discomfort that someone might feel. Um, it's 
it's got to do with the systems and structure of your practice, not just what happens in the consultation room one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, 100%. And, and those signs actually, I think, say to people uh, who are uh, using drugs that actually we're not going to see you. They make a very broad statement. Um, really great stuff that you've raised there. And I guess the other really big takeaway for me for this discussion has been about that this conversation and language is really, it's a two-way conversation between the patient and the doctor and that the like fundamental importance of like a bit of give and take on both sides and a bit of compassion on both sides is really warranted and needed to kind of make this a successful, successful relationship. So thank you very much, um, Franny and James, for that conversation.